Welcome to the Mike Litton Experience Podcast. Mike has over 31 years experience in real estate, finance, and investing. He's passionate about being a father, a teacher, a realtor, an investor, and a leader. Everyone has a story, and our passion is to help them tell it. And now, introducing the host of the Mike Litton Experience, Mike Litton. So what is Mike Time? Mike Time is a set of short stories that have happened throughout my lifetime, experiences of mine throughout my lifetime, that have taught me lessons that I hope will be of value to you. So what can you expect from the Mike Litton Experience? You can expect stories that will inspire, motivate, deliver advice that sharpens your focus, as well as providing expert information regarding real estate, finance, and market conditions. Bruce Marks, CEO and founder of NACA. Thank you so much for being on the Mike Litton experience. We really appreciate you, buddy. I know you're busy. I know you've got a lot on your plate. Like we talked about, everyone has a story and our passion is to help them tell it. The idea behind it is this. We know, Bruce, that people are going to hear your story and they're going to be inspired and motivated when they hear your story. They're going to connect with you somehow. And it's going to inspire them and motivate them to do things that they might not have otherwise done. And that's what we're all about. Okay. So with your permission, can we start with the very beginning? Where were you born? I was born in New York City. Okay. So, uh, Did you grow so, up in New York City? No, I, no. Actually, I grew up uh, outside, of New York, outside of New York City in Westchester County. Okay. Uh, so I grew up in Scarsdale. Okay. Uh, you know. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, lived there. So I had the opportunity to see. So because I was close to New York City, I had a, a number of friends who were black and then uh, who didn't have the same opportunities that I had and uh, that the, the people around me had. And then I saw, you know, the people around me have, who were overwhelmingly white had, uh, you know, more opportunities, even though they might have been not the brightest lights, but because of where they were and their back and where they're growing up, they had the opportunities. And if they weren't very good, then they would go into marketing, you I know? So that, that was the safety net for, you know, you know, you know, people who, you know, you know, grew up in, um, you know, up, upper middle-class environment. I got you. So, you know, so I was able to see the sense of entitlement and the lack of opportunities and the contrast between the two. And then, you know, I'm a product of, of uh, you know, fighting for economic justice, uh, raised civil rights in the 1970s, yeah. you know, and, and, uh, and, you know, here we are today. So what was your favorite thing about growing up in the Scarsdale area? Never oh, asked me that. What was my favorite thing? <laughs> um... You know, you know, I think, you know, you had the opportunity to play a lot of different sports. Okay. So, uh, so, uh, and, you know, and frankly, you could walk around, you know, you know, you know, in the neighborhood, you go to go to everybody's house and knock, you know, you know, just, uh, you didn't have to make an appointment or schedule anything. You just, you know, hang out on the block and, you know, you know, cause some trouble and, you know, and, uh, or just have fun so you know it was a neighborhood piece it was a good and, place to grow up yeah yeah I mean, you know it, i don't think it had uh any kind of lasting uh impact in that it was 
you know, uneventful. And I guess there's so growing up, who was, who was the most influential person to you growing up? uh, That was my aunt, uh, you know, Esther Ross. So, um, uh, she, uh, she ended up, she was, you know, living in New York city. Uh, she was involved in the politics in New York and, uh, you know, you know, fighting for economic justice. And, uh, so she was, uh, had a huge influence on my life. So she was and, kind of a lightning rod. It sounds like. Absolutely. And so I love going down, spending time with her. Uh, I think they lived on West 96th Street uh, back then and just hanging out and going there and just spending the night and hanging out and just talking to her and seeing what she's doing and just, you know, you know, talk about talk about politics and talk about what was going on in New York City. So you grow up in Scarsdale, you graduate high school there, right? No, No, what happens after that? Actually, my parents, uh, they um, ended up moving to Greenwich, Connecticut. Okay. And uh, I, you know, ended up, uh, you know, and and ended up going going to Greenwich High School. Okay. And, and in Greenwich High School, there were three grades. Uh, each one had a thousand kids in. Wow. And wow. so, so the wealthy kids went to the private schools. And, you know, the ones who didn't were in the top tier. So um, I was in the third tier. I was in the lowest tier. Okay. So I was with uh, the kids uh, who's, you know, lived in, lived in Coscob and some of the areas and the kids whose, you know, parents were the service workers. Right. Or the wealthy um, people in Greenwich. And so we were part of, you know, the third tier who was, was you know, never going to be successful, you know, who were relegated to, uh, the service jobs and okay. relative other jobs, but not as part of the elite. So there were a thousand kids in the class. I saw just a small subsection of that group. Uh, and, you know, but the one course I took that was the most effective was typing. So okay. they had not advanced anything, you know, the lowest level. So when someone says, well, you went to Greenwich, well, you know, Greenwich High School. It's uh, it is the public school and you know, relegated to the third tier. I got you. I got you. So a little bit of that, a little bit of that gap, right? A little bit of that sort of inequity gap, I guess is the best way to put it, right? Yeah. I mean, so you, yeah, so. you got a chance to to see that growing up. So you graduate Greenwich High School. What happens then? Uh, ended up uh, ended up going going to UConn, University of Connecticut at okay. Stewart. Okay. I my grades weren't good enough, even though I was in the third tier, but um uh a tennis player. So I got there on my tennis. There you so, go. So I played number one at UConn uh on uh, the tennis team. And okay. that's how I got there. I got you. And, and then uh there uh um I spent um I I uh, ended up spending a year in uh, London uh, on you know your your uh, junior year abroad. Yeah, uh, I thought I was going to the University of London. Okay, so I get to London. I think I'm going there, and I figured out 
that uh, it was a mistake. I'm going to the City University of London. Oh my gosh! Okay, big difference. Big difference. Yeah, the City University of London is an engineering school. So I go there, you know, and then I said, okay, I am going to be studying studying political science. So I go to a few of the classes, and it is your extreme Trotskyite, you know, you know, your extreme left. Yeah, I didn't understand a thing of what they were doing, oh but I God. had a time for a year in London uh, during that time. <laughs> and I, you know, come on back to UConn, and they say, "Well, you know, you spent a year in London, and they passed you, you know, because the, you know these are." you're far left so they pass you for doing nothing right well how are we going to grade you i said well it's in london it's uh at the university of london mm -hmm. and uh, so i got all straight a's for having a great time um in london for the year wow sounds like it sounded like it was pretty fun it was, it was. awesome awesome so you sure. so you graduate uconn yes what was your favorite thing about going to school at uconn Oh, that I could spend uh, a year in London. That was your and, favorite. Uh, okay, that was your highlight. Cool. Favorite thing. I mean, I mean, I mean, you have to understand. So, uh, I get to UConn, and you know, I'm a freshman, and my roommate is uh, the big drug dealer. He has crates of marijuana. I mean, crates what? of marijuana. Oh, oh my gosh! Room. Now we know why it was so much fun. <laughs> he says to me that, uh, and I'm a, just a young kid, so yeah, you know. So uh, he says to me, um, you say anything and you're dead, right? Yeah. So it was pretty intense, you know, yeah. the, the uh, you know, drug dealer in Yukon. But uh, he was caught eventually and, uh, you know, he was thrown out. But uh, no, I mean, it's, um, uh, you know, they had the beer fest and they had all that. I wasn't a great student. Oh, you that's cool. Well, you had a good time. That's that's cool. You know, and that was your highlight, right, of your of your collegiate career. So you leave UConn, where do you go? So, uh, so um, in really, really my last semester, I am an LBJ scholar with Stuart McKinney, uh, with um, with um, Congressman McKinney. Okay. So I do that. And then uh, I stay down in Washington and uh, I um, got a job at the Department of Energy okay. uh, under Carter, President Carter. So I did that for about a year, for a couple of years, actually. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I, you know, uh, go to business school. Uh, so I go to, go to um, um, NYU, New York University, and okay. I do a joint degree in business and politics. Okay. That was really interesting because um, the business was really pretty easy. Mm -hmm. uh, um, the politics was hard because you actually had to think. So when people give a lot of credence to people who do an MBA, you know, what are you going to learn doing an MBA? You know, internal rate of return, all that. But what's interesting is that that's at, at NYU is the training ground for your, you know, people working Wall Street. Okay. And they would have Wall Street executives, corporate executives come and speak. So uh, um, that's where I learned the enemy. So I said, I wanted to learn the enemy better than they know themselves. Okay. And that's what I did. So, you know, I uh, 
it, it was it was good. It was, you know, the politics was pretty intense. The business was pretty easy. Okay. But the best course I um, took uh, when I was at, at NYU was an accounting course. They gave us three corporations. No, five. They gave us five um, uh, um, corporations. Okay. We went belly up. Two were doing good. And one was on the verge. And they said, here's the public information, you know, the 10Ks, the prospectuses, the annual reports, all that. And they said, figure that out. Okay. So that was really educational because, you know, that's how when you go after these targets and you go after these big companies, if you really analyze that stuff, it tells a story. True. It tells the true story. And uh, really learn from that. And then, you know... um, you know, we had debate classes, and that was pretty interesting. And uh, uh, so I was there. And then, uh, you know, what do you do after that? So, uh, you know, uh, I had applied for some banks to because I wanted to get on the inside to learn these banks and their their reoperations. So I applied to Mellon Bank was rejected because uh, the feedback was uh, I didn't wear the appropriate suits. So they gave me uh, the business card for someone at um, Barney's uh, in New York City, go and talk to him to wear the right attire. Wow. But uh, so then I do an interview at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And so I had mismatched my jacket and my pants on that uh, interview, but I got that job. Oh wow! But uh, but I I had caused some trouble at at NYU because I did this thing called substitute Santa. Okay. And Leslie, you remember back then? You're I don't know whether you remember back then, but at that point, Johnny Carson would read uh, letters that kids write to Santa Claus. Yep, I remember those. Yeah. That. And if you go to the post office, to the New York City post office, you would, uh, you, they would stack these letters. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, you know, you'd read them. And yeah. kids would read Santa Claus saying, I'm not going to have, um, uh, you know, any, any, you know, presents or my, you know, parents are in this circumstance. So I started doing Substitute Santa where we would take the letters and we would have, you know, we'd get some money from the, from the students or we they bring gifts and all that. Mm-hmm. In the last year, I think I, I we did way over a thousand letters. Wow! And we we would we would actually go to the homes, you know, to the apartments, and we we uh, would deliver them. So I was just going around harassing uh, the uh, you know the students and everybody I could think of to uh, raise sponsor, give money, bring toys. To, so well, that's not a bad. That's not a bad reason to harass somebody. I've been been going after and uh, really harassing or do whatever whatever the right term is uh, for many many years. Yeah, ever since, right? That's awesome, man. So, um, so you leave NYU and you go to work at the Federal Reserve. I'll bet that was eye opening. So I was in this. That's the second district. So I was in, I was in the domestic applications area. Okay. So in that that department, 
that is the focal point of everybody, of all the institutions that want to do other activities. They want to merge or acquire. They come through our department. Okay. So we would do the analysis. We would get the legal um, uh, evaluation. And then you would use, you would evaluate them which was the CAMEL analysis. You would look at the capital asset management equity liquidity, and you would do that. So it was a big position, but it's also a position that it was the revolving door. You'd work there, and the banks that you would regulate, they would try to hire you. So most of the people there would just do that for a bit, and then they would go and they work for the banks that they would regulate that they would regulate. So they weren't too harsh on those institutions since they were looking for a job there uh, over time. It was a stepping so, stone for them, yeah. It was a stepping stone. So, but I wasn't looking at that. <laughs> I, um, so I am the position where uh, one of these big uh, banks in big banks in New Jersey, they were applying uh, to reacquire another institution and they had a, really poor, poor CRA record. I mean, they were not lending to, um, you know, to the whole community. They weren't lending to people of color right. and even a warning and they never did anything. So I refused to approve their application. And then I was, uh, I was, I was considered not a team player. Right. Not very popular. <laughs> They didn't want to override me, so they put a lot of pressure to, you know, for me to change my decision on that. But uh, I, I wouldn't. So right. um, I was brought into the vice president's office and saying, "You've got to do this," because they didn't want a track record of, you know, an analyst saying no and to override it. But you know, so that was interesting, and you know, they. Uh, they had a lot of asbestos there, and my girlfriend at the time was uh, an industrial hygienist, so we we're testing for the asbestos, and it was an interesting time. Oh, but it was. But the but one of the best stories was um, uh, if you go to the Federal Reserve of um of um New York, mm -hmm. you know you know there's there's gold there, or they they yeah. think that you know that they have the uh, deposit. So I would ride my bicycle in every day. And I, I would tie it to the post. And uh, so one day I, for, I forgot, I lost my keys. So I couldn't get, get uh, my bicycle off. So I brought my car in, this old Chevrolet. And I was on the hood of the car, pulling the bicycle off of the post. And uh, these guys, you know, some of the security guards come out, their guns, you know, you know out there oh. saying things, trying to get into the Federal Reserve because you know, here's the car, car on the sidewalk, and all that stuff. So, oh um, my gosh! Uh, but I, but but I learned the enemy, and I went around to um, these different community organizations, activist organizations. I said, you know, I'm an insider. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. I have all this confidential information. Right. I I can really help you guys out. Um. And they, these groups said, well, can you show that the banks are engaged in racist um, discriminatory lending practices? I said, no, 
It's not so easy to show that, but I can show you where their vulnerabilities are. Mm -hmm. Insider trading, violations, and I can show you where the weak points are. They weren't interested. Mm -hmm. I said, well, if you're going to take on these entities, you know, you know, you're not going to always get right to the one issue that you want to focus on. You've got to find out where they're vulnerable. Right. And I, I, they're vulnerable, but they, uh, they, they weren't keen on that. So you learned how to figure out where their weak spot was. Absolutely. And then, and, and then and eventually every, it sounds like every, you could exploit it. Everyone is doing something illegal. Yeah. Everyone. You just have to look, you know, yeah. and uh, yeah, insider training, things they don't have the rights to do or they weren't licensed to do or, you know, you've got to, you know, every one of them is in violation. You just got to dig and, you know, look to see where that those things are. Find out. Look hard enough. Find out. Yeah, their vulnerabilities. So how long were you with the Federal Reserve? For about two and a half years. Okay. And this was when? What year? I graduated. Boy, graduated. That was in eight, uh, 82 to 84. Okay, so during the Reagan administration. Yeah. I got you. That was a, I bet that was an interesting time on Wall Street. Wow. So, so, you know, you sort of go back in, in, you know, so between the regulators, you've got, you know, the Federal Reserve, you've got the OCC, and you, 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 you have some others. And back then, the Fed was um, the more powerful one, not the OCC. And, you know, that changed over time. So it sort of goes um, up and down in waves of who was the more aggressive regulator. I got you. Um, but it was... Um, it was eye-opening, to say the least. And so after the Federal Reserve, where did you go to work? Uh, I got a job for a, non a nonprofit uh, in, in Boston uh, called EBA. Okay. Uh, uh, Inclinados Boricos in Acción. So it's a nonprofit CDC. And so um, I was doing housing development, which I had no idea what I was doing. Right. Um, but then I volunteered and spent time with um, some two of the major players in Boston, um, Mel King, who is a civil rights icon, okay. loves tennis. He insisted on playing when he played tennis. It had to be like at six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning. Was just <laughs> did that. And the other person, Dominic Bazzato, who was head of the Hotel Workers Workers Union Local Twenty Six. Okay. And actually, he was doing uh, an overview of EBA at the time. So I met Dominic and Mel. And then uh, I, you know, volunteered for, with um, both of them. And I volunteered with the hotel workers more doing that and um, uh, helping them out on their community outreach and their um, uh, contract negotiations, getting, um, getting support. So I worked for EBA for about probably a year and a half, two years. Uh, and then I got a job at um, the Neighborhood Reinvestments uh, Corporation. Um, and that is now called NeighborWorks. And I did that for less than a year. I was fired because I told them that I was up in Rutland, um, Vermont, doing outreach because you're assigned these NHS's neighborhood housing services to do work with. 
Right. And right. I, when I was there, the only problem was is that they saw me on Channel 7 News uh, in Boston supporting the hotel workers' contract negotiations. Oh, no. That, so that didn't work out. Is that, that didn't work out too well. Yeah. yeah. I thought you were in Vermont. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, so I was fired from there. Uh, went to volunteer with uh, the, the hotel workers over 26 um, um, uh, full-time. And then uh, I en ended up creating a position there because uh, uh, a guy named, he was uh, a political operative, ran for mayor uh, in Boston, Joe Timothy. He was going around saying that the union had $5 million of pension monies to invest. Dominic yells out of his office, does anybody know anything about housing or finance? I said, yeah, that's my background. Mm -hmm. I just figured I was gonna be a union organizer. So, so we got into that. And wow. uh, so that's where it started. We started trying to do housing development that didn't work. And then we said, well, why don't we negotiate a housing trust fund um, you know, for the hotel workers uh, so that they could, uh, you know, um, they could live close to where they worked. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we said, that makes sense. You know, you, you can negotiate for um, benefits and wages and all that. Problem was it was illegal because it, with the Taft-Hartley Act, if that type of benefit is not uh, a permissive subject of bargaining, then uh, you could not even talk about it. Hmm. So what we did, so we ended up doing a campaign for uh, probably, it, you know, took us about a year and a half. And in the 1988 contract, we got the hotel owners to agree to that because we did the outreach to our membership. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and Dominic was um, a new leader uh, in the Hotel Workers Union because prior to Dominic becoming head of it, uh, if you were if you worked in the back of the house and stewarding or housekeeping, you couldn't even eat. Um, in the cafeteria, because the front of the house, um, which was overwhelmingly white from South Boston, Charleston, um, you know, that's where they were. So it's, you know, Boston as a segregated community and city, and the hotel union was no different than that. So he comes in there as the reform candidate, as a, the reform president, changes that and wants to expand the benefits for the workers. So we ended up uh, getting that into the contract, but we had 18 months to change the federal labor law. So we ended up going to Washington, met with um, Lane Kirkland, head of the AFL-CIO, mm -hmm. patted us on the head saying, you know, everything in Washington is a zero sum game. To get something, you have to give up something. And I uh, said, you're never going to get it done because the building trades basically called the shots mm -hmm. with the AFL. So we organized and we got us raised support from around the country. We got uh, we, uh, you know, got Senator Kennedy on board. We got we um, got Congressman Mokley on board and we organized and we got the first George Bush in 1990 mm -hmm. to sign it. 
-hmm. that was the first time a local union had ever changed the federal labor law. Wow. And it was a huge deal. Yeah. So I thought this was it. That was uh, the pinnacle of what I would be doing. Um, everything else would be downhill from there. Mm -hmm. But that benefit didn't work because of the racist and the predatory practices of um, of uh, these banks. So an individual, because there was a lot of media around this, so an individual named Miles Iyamu calls me up and says, you know, do you know about hard lenders? No idea. Mm -hmm. So he educated about hard lenders, predatory lenders, met with Miles, and for two and a half years, we did the research. And then we took on Fleet Bank. That was a four and a half year war. Um, uh, we coined the term predatory lending. Mm -hmm. And we won that... Um, uh, we won that war, uh, took four and a half years. It was, you know, there are actually some people in that campaign who actually died. It was pretty rough, very rough, actually. Um, but, uh, you know, this is fleet finance. This was um, definitely a rogue operation. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say it was a rogue operation. It was very fundamental to fleet. They were generating over 40% of the profits. So, so the last thing we did to, I guess, to push them over the edge was that um, there was uh, a uh, a conf well, it was a it was a breakfast meeting sponsored by the Harvard Business School, okay, at the Newton Marriott Hotel, and so we uh, stole the names and Terry Murray, the CEO of Fleet, was speaking. And we stole the names of the Harvard Business School graduates. So about, about 40 of us went in there uh, under the pseudonyms of these Harvard Business Business School graduates. And they hadn't seen too many minority uh, Harvard Business School graduates. Um, and we shut it down. We said to Terry Murray, we spread out and we shut it down. And we said, um, Oh, there's a lot of stories out there. This is just one of many of what we did. Um, <laughs> and he said to everybody that what we're saying about fleet finance was absolutely correct, that he would settle this within two weeks. And he was good to his word. So um, we had three meetings, each for a couple of hours. One, first one is to get to know each other and get a sense. We sort of knew each other, but to have that meeting face to face. Mm -hmm. uh, Second one was to really define the uh, basically the parameters of the agreement. The third one was to was to finalize it, sign it. So they did an in in city uh, program for eight billion dollars. They settled all the lawsuits. Roy Barnes, um, who becomes uh, was a lawyer in Georgia, he was uh, the speaker of the House in Georgia at that time. He becomes he eventually becomes governor. He got, um, we settled that case for $9 million and he got $3 million in fees. I mean, we settled all these cases and then we got $140 million in this one mortgage product. Didn't give us $140 million of cash, just in one mortgage. That's no down payment and no closing costs. And the last thing Terry Murray says to me, saying, I've given you everything you have demanded uh, now you're going to be subjected to all the regulatory requirements that goes along with mortgage lending. Hmm. Never going to be an activist again. 
because I've given you enough rope to hang yourself. Wow. And he didn't say it in a bad way. He just said it as a matter of fact. He just said, this is it. You know, now, no, be careful what you ask for because you just got it. Right. But he didn't realize what he gave us is full control. So we took that $140 million in that mortgage product, no down payment, no closing costs. And we have uh, expanded that to now $20 billion of the best mortgage in this country. Right. It's the best mortgage. So, and, and we were able to reinvent mortgage lending, starting out with that $140 million uh, from fleet. Right. And then I can tell you, you know, we could spend hours talking about many hours, uh, you know, our campaigns during the mortgage crisis against uh, Chase and taking over Jamie Diamond's property. I mean, you know, going all kinds of things we did to Chase and- I've seen the videos. I've seen the videos. And I also heard, I also heard a, an audio recording of you testifying before Congress. And and the test the testifying you're doing before Congress is you're literally pleading with them. And this was in 2000, I think. And you were telling them, look, if you keep loosening lending guidelines, you're going to create a housing crisis. You cannot continue to do this with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And the people you were talking to, ironically enough, were Dodd and Frank, who later came up with Dodd-Frank, right? The thing was, Dodd and Frank on either side, the congressional side and the Senate side, put enormous pressure on, and you remember all this, right? The whole thing about we need to increase the person in the Clinton administration, we need to increase the percentage of home ownership. That carried over into the Bush administration, that same initiative. And the early 2000s, it was all about, you know, the the average home ownership in the U.S. was 62% of people in the U.S. owned a home. We need to push that number up. And so let's loosen the guidelines so that we can get that number up. And a lot of us, I've been doing this for 31 plus years. I've been in real estate and I'll, and more, I started out in the mortgage business. A lot of us were literally pleading with the government not to do this. You were in Washington in talking to Congress. You were testifying before Congress. And I remember listening to those tapes, the, the, the audio of you just literally pleading with them, don't do this. And you really were a voice that we wished we had had, to be honest with you. Yeah, I think I was one of the first ones to actually predict the mortgage crisis. You were. So so, 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 so on September 12th of 2000, I invited to Congress by the Republicans. Right. And because I was critical of Fannie Mae mm -hmm. uh, at that point, by um, Reigns was the CEO. And Reigns was the one who said, my family did subprime lending. Subprime lending is good. And actually, it was interesting. Um, as an aside, so um, to get into the hearings, you had to pay $500. Why is that? Because what they were doing is that, you know, we had always people want to get into hearings. Mm -hmm. But there's a massive line. So uh, about 20 minutes before the hearing starts, uh, there's a flip. The line was homeless people that Fannie Mae was paying. And so what they did is that they would switch. So just before the hearing, the Fannie Mae executives would switch with the homeless people. Oh, my God. And so they were holding their place in line? They're holding their places. And that goes on today. Oh. That, if you, that if you want to get into the hearings, 
what these companies do, and they charge huge amounts. So, you know, you can't go to a homeless person and say, you know, I'm going to switch with you because they're hired by these companies. They go in and they're, they're, they're the line sitters. Hmm. And they go in there like a day or two before for some of these, you know, important hearings. So they pack the hearings with the executives and with their own people. So at that point, to get into that hearing, that was 500 bucks for one person to get in. Now, so uh, uh, I testified. But when you heard that testimony, it was a battle between me and oh, Maxine yeah. and others. And yeah. and they were they were going to hold me in contempt because if you listen to that, I'm calling them liars. I'm yeah. saying what thing is 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 a lie. Yeah. They said, "Well, you can't call members of Congress liars." I said, "Well, if they ain't telling the truth, I'm calling them out." So it was it was a it was a battle. I said, "Well, that's just the way it is." Well, so, um, I mean it it was it was very very honest. Okay. And like I said, you were speaking for a lot of us that didn't have the opportunity to speak. And we were incredibly, me in particular, I was incredibly grateful that you were, that you were doing that. Um, And I, you know, I found you, I found you and I found Naka by accident. I was, I, I had started a radio show in San Diego a couple of months before you guys came to San Diego, but I had a, I had a client who, I was in the mortgage business. I was known as the guy who got people approved when they couldn't get approved. So like my very, I, I got into the business because I got turned down for the first home loan I ever applied for. Um, and I, and I, so I got into the business and the very first home loan that I did my first month, eight other lenders had turned them down and they were going to lose their house to foreclosure, their dream house that they were building. If we hadn't gotten this done within the next two weeks, we got it done. We got it approved save their house. It was incredible. The feeling was amazing. I made a reputation for myself as being somebody who studied guidelines, who figured out a way to make things work when other everybody else just said, you know, call me in two years or, or you know, right? I was the guy who dug. I was the guy who got after it. And so in, 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 2000, in 2011, I had a client who had had to short sale their house. They lost their house to short sale, basically. And they were so eager. And you know this, you've seen the, you've seen the look, I know you have, in the eyes of people who have lost their house to foreclosure, lost their house through bankruptcy, lost their house through, through short sale, okay? They have a burning desire that is palpable. They want to own again. I helped this couple get into escrow on a property using a very, very a not well-known FHA guideline, okay, that I could get them in faster than, than what they were told they could get in. She goes to her, the wife goes to the, her hairdresser, her hairstylist that she'd been seeing for years in, in, here in Escondido. Her hairstylist, she says, she says, hey, why are you so happy? And she said, well, I we're, we've got a house, we're in escrow on a house, and we're so excited, and I'm so happy, and and her hairstylist started crying. And she goes, why are you crying? And she said, I'm losing my house in 18 days to trustee sale. I'm on my eighth loan modification application with Chase, and they're getting ready to turn it down for the eighth time. Okay. So this client of mine says, well, don't, don't cry. Don't, don't be, don't be upset. Don't worry. I'll have Mike call you. He'll take care of it. No pressure, right? No pressure. 
So the reason why I started the, the radio show was because I was frustrated, Bruce. I was having conversations with people one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two. I needed a bigger megaphone. And so I went out and started this, this radio show to get, to get, because people, you know, this people were losing their houses to foreclosure right and left. I mean, it was crazy. And so I wanted to get the truth out. So what happens is the very next morning after she has her call me, the very next morning, I'm having coffee with my wife watching the KTLA Channel 5 News in Los Angeles. And they're, mm -hmm. they have a, an airship, a, a helicopter that's over the forum. Over the forum. You were there. You were there. They were over the forum and they were, they were filming or you know showing how far the line went all the way around the block. Do you remember this? And it, you know, it was all filled up in front. They went to the reporter that Eric, um, I forget his last name, but Eric's his first name. He's been there forever, right? They go to him and he's talking to one of your people that has on the 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 loan shark, um, yeah. you know, yellow yellow t-shirt. Yeah, yeah. By the way, yeah, I have same. one of those. Um, they'll use them, yeah. Right. Well, I used to volunteer with you guys. So so I'm so I'm so so they. So it turns out all those people are all homeowners and they're trying to get a loan modification. And naturally, I just had this conversation the day before. So I look, I look your website up. You guys are coming the next day to San Diego, the very next day. And so I went down to the convention center and I walked right. up to the, to the front desk and she said, are you here to volunteer? Or are you here to get your loan modified? And I said, neither. I'm here to see if you're for real because I've got a client potentially that I need to refer to you people, but I need to make sure you're for real. She goes, well, you need to meet Linda then. And she calls Linda. You remember Linda? She calls Linda. Linda comes out and takes me for a tour. And that's when I met you. You were on your phone talking and I walked and she walked me up and she said, shake this guy's hand. And I shook your hand. You probably don't remember that, but Darren Duarte was right there next to you. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I yeah. met Darren. Yeah. So, we go through, we take the whole tour. Now I know you're for real. I am completely floored. I walked into the convention center with Linda. Within 30 seconds, there's a guy on up on the on the dais with a microphone in his hand. And he says, I want to thank Litton Loan Servicing for, yes. for forgiving $99,000 of my principal. I had yeah. just had a conversation with Litton Loan Servicing's customer service department the week before about a friend's a, a client's friend who was losing her house to foreclosure with Lytton. And I asked her, is there any way that you would ever forgive principal? Would you ever consider any other option? And she said, Mike, we never have, we never, we will not now, and we never will forgive principal. And within 30 seconds of walking in there, this guy says this, okay, in front of everybody. And so you instantly got my attention. And then we finished the tour. The next day I come down and volunteer and they give me that beautiful yellow shirt, right? Yeah, and I, yeah. and they, because I have a background in mortgages, I literally had done thousands by that time. Uh, because I have a background in mortgages, they put me in the self-employment room, right? Where we sit and we go through and check their numbers. You know this, right? And it yeah. was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. You took six months of deposits and, and expenses and then averaged them. And that was their qualifying income. Yeah. That wasn't what we did in traditional underwriting. And that was why this hairstylist who was self-employed had been turned down for the for the eighth time. I actually sat with the underwriter at the Home Ownership Center, Chase's Home Ownership Center, and we went over it. We went over her taxes, the whole thing. And I had to agree that she was a turn, she was a decline, right? 
So that hairstylist, I called her and said, you need to get down to the convention center, bring all your paperwork, get down here as soon as you possibly can. She comes down on Saturday. She needed a couple of documents. She went back to the house, came back on Sunday, and she got her loan modification. And, and you saved her home from foreclosure. So I had Darren on my show that Saturday afternoon. So that Saturday morning, I volunteered. He came with me to my show. The very next day, I'm in the I'm volunteering on Sunday. I'm in the self employment room, and there's a 71 year old man and his 49 year old son. 49 year old son's losing his house to foreclosure. Dad had given had his son take over his nursery business. Okay, so they're sitting there together, and I have my head down and I'm checking their numbers. I'm literally just doing my thing, right, making sure their numbers are correct. Got my calculator going, the whole thing. I said, so how did you hear about this? And they said, well, my friend called me, the dad said, my friend called me yesterday and said, this crazy guy on the radio said, don't pass go, don't collect $200, call anybody that you know that's that's in default and have them go to the convention center now. No questions. Don't question, don't, don't, don't question, just go do it. And I said, oh, really? I never even looked up. I said, oh, really? This 71-year-old man said, that was you, wasn't it, son? And I said, yes, sir, it was. And he said, you just got a listener for life. By the way, yeah. you saved their house from foreclosure. Just so you know. Okay. I mean, literally hundreds that I witnessed. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I followed you guys back up to LA and we were at the forum again. And I was yeah. there every day, the whole, the whole time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I had a blast. Yeah. Um, so that was why it was so important to me to have you on my radio show and also to have you on this podcast because. I mean, you can tell I'm a huge fan of yours uh, and I have been from day one and I'm super, super excited that people get to hear your story. So, so the 2008 crisis happens. And from what I understand, you go to Countrywide and you tell Countrywide that you have this idea. And the idea is that you can help them pair their losses by, by implementing so a loan modification strategy. And you go, and this is this. I'm paraphrasing what you had told me in the past, but you you open you do one event in Washington D.C. and it was you had a line around the building and and down the way, and you couldn't believe how popular it was. And then you went from Countrywide to Chase to all these other all these other companies, right? Some of it took some arm twisting, right? I remember I remember you you went to Jamie Dimon's house. I remember um, you went to another lender's house the CEO, but you, but basically you and your people just kind of invaded the place right on a Saturday and, uh, and yeah. put, put pressure on these people and they responded. Right. I yes. just felt like, I felt like you were one of the only people in the world that's fighting for the, for people that can't fight for themselves, you know? And I just, I just admi I admire you so much. I can't even tell you. Um, I know you can't tell because I hide it well. But uh, <laughs> so so we did a lot of really good things back then, and um, and then after that you became a lender, right? Well, well, or was it before that? I guess it was before that. So so what you're saying is, I mean, it, it you're exactly right. I mean, you know, going back to the events that we did at, you know, we did a number in Los Angeles and we were in San Diego. We did 144 of these events. Right. Uh, over more than five years, about five and a half years. 
And like, the, as you said, as you said, Mike, the, the one in Los Angeles, I mean, people were lining up three days before the event started. Yeah. I mean, thousands and thousands of people. We had 40, 50,000 people there. Yeah. So we, we, we were able to, you know, so we had that. I remember at the Cow Palace in San Francisco, we had, you know, thousands of people before people were camping out, you know, for three days and, and bonding actually mm -hmm. with campfires and, you know, talking about their circumstances. And then uh, in Palm beach, we did an event and, at, and people wouldn't leave, you know, as you know, these were five day events, sometimes longer um, and people wouldn't leave. And then, you know, at three 30 in the morning, literally I'm walking over mothers holding their children, cuddling their children because they were determined to save their homes mm -hmm. and they wouldn't leave. So we ended up doing this 24 hours a day. We had, you know, 12 hour shifts and we would do this. We would have these agreements with the lenders, as you're talking about, Mike, to, you know, to reduce the interest rate to as low as 2% and sometimes reduce the outstanding principal. And we were able to save people on the spot, you know, hundreds, sometimes one or two thousand uh, dollars in their mortgage payments, in their monthly mortgage payments. So people yeah. were leave, leaving, say, saving, you know, over a thousand dollars often on their mortgage payments. But if we take a step back, re, 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 remember what this was. It was a home ownership deception scheme. That's what it was. And the reason why I say it was a home ownership deception scheme is because you can't blame the homeowners because the initial interest rate and payments were affordable. Right. So they were qualified for an affordable payment. So you, we didn't have a crisis before 2007. Right. Because people, it's not because people got mortgages in 2007. It's because that's when they would reset. So the payments would double or triple so they could never afford that, right. but they were never, but these lenders, investors, you know, they set them up knowing that piece. So it was a homeownership deception scheme because they weren't actually homeowners on the long term right. because these mortgages were structured to fail. But yes, we helped over 500,000 homeowners save their homes, yeah. over 500,000 and, you know, indirectly many more than that. Yeah. But that's what we were able to do directly. But going back to your to your question, we were doing the the purchase stuff before this. Okay. So, so, so we before, were doing it before. So before uh, the Great Recession, that right, was that the before fleet? the mortgage crisis. So so we knew that that was going. So the way that we were experts and we could predict the mortgage crisis was because we still had this, you know, really good mortgage, no down payment, no closing costs, no fees. But we were, no one, people were not coming to us. They were getting these subprime mortgages. So we were counseling them. And we looked at these terms. We said, you're going to lose your home eventually. Yeah. You know, yeah. because, you know, when these, when these mortgages reset. So we ended up reducing our purchase side by about a third. We closed down offices because we weren't willing to change the criteria that we used to compete with these subprime lenders. Right. So that's how we were really in the middle of the mix, knowing that this thing was going to happen. And then, and then, so when it happened, we were in the forefront of doing this, but, but, you know, we were, we went against everybody. We, uh, you know, had to, we had to fight the lenders out there. 
We had to fight the servicers. We had to fight the investors. Mm -hmm. You know, so like I traveled internationally because we were first identified as experts out there in, you know, in uh, London. I went to London to do a show and in Germany and in Japan because they were the investors holding these mortgages. Right. So they were they were on the hook for it. And then we, you know, we had to fight the Obama administration. They mm -hmm. tried to take us down uh, because we, we were very critical. And to this day, to this day, Mike, there are 3 million African-American homeowners, a lot of them with FHA, FHA mortgages and some others, but particularly the government-owned ones who lost their homes because the Obama administration didn't do the right thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and we kept telling them. And, you know, you can look at, at what Tim Geithner didn't do and should have done and Larry Summers and those players out there. And they need to be held accountable, we, you know, before and even now for so many people losing their homes. But to answer your question, yes, we did that. And um, we've been building the purchase side since then. And, you know, and I can talk about our new campaigns. But uh, you know we've been we've been doing this against opposition from you know the the powers that be. I right. mean, you know, you you've been a big supporter of the people on the ground who know what's going on, but the people at that level, the policymakers, the powers, they don't like to be pushed. They don't like to be held accountable, and that's what we do. Yeah, I agree with that. I totally agree with that. The thing that was so the thing that's so refreshing for me is, you know, I've 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 been promoting home ownership for 31 plus years, right? Right. And a big part of that has been sitting with people. I mean, I'm working with a lady right now that's working with your companies, that's working with NACA. Yeah. And yeah. she has just been put through the ringer. She got her her original mortgage back in 2004 and I mean, it has just been, it's just been insane. And she keeps getting turned down for these loan modifications because she has too much equity in her house. I mean, what sort of a reason is that to, to, I mean, come on, you know, it's just, so we were literally on the phone with your, with your office, um, not yesterday, but the day before. Um, and I got on the phone with her, right. Kind of as moral support more than anything else, but, um, but it's, you know, the, the, what you do still goes on. And there are, there are, I don't know, I don't, I don't know, I, you and I haven't talked about this, but there was an article in CBS Market Watch in 2019, February 2019, you probably saw it, where it talked about the housing bubble. And it talked about the remnants of it. Like there's tens of millions of, of home loans out there still that were originally subprime loans. And the they've had major delinquencies, like four or five years where they haven't been making payments. That percentage jumped so high that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac eliminated that section out of their annual report. So in 2019, they didn't put it in their annual report. Or 2018, they didn't put it in their annual report because the because it was going up so fast and it was alarming to see. So this deal's not over. We're not through the entire looking glass here. There's a there's a ticking time bomb out there, and it's these tens of millions of, of mortgages. I listed a house for sale in 2018 that these people purchased with a subprime mortgage in 2006. 
they had on a $425,000 mortgage, their payment was $4,000 a month. And Bruce, they paid it religiously for 12 years. Yeah. Now, here's the ramifications, and here's the thing nobody talks about. They couldn't afford the water anymore, so they got rid of all the landscaping around the house. There was a leak in the wall. They couldn't repair it. The flooring was the original builder flooring from 12 years ago. All these things factored in, as you well know, to trying to sell their house for them, okay? And they couldn't afford a new car and they couldn't afford to send their kids to college. They could. So what I'm sharing with you is, a, is, a, is an actual systematic reduction or massive reduction in quality of life, okay? But but then I, then I, I would add to that, Mike, in terms of look at, so when you look at the mortgage prices in 2008 through 12, you know, that was on mortgages that were structured to fail. Yeah. So, and you had all these investors around the world buying those mortgages, right? So what's going on now? Those same players, they said, well, we're going to learn from what happened in 2000 during the mortgage crisis. And what are they doing now? Through these trusts, they're actually buying properties. Mm -hmm. And they're targeting the properties in the black communities, which because of the racist appraisers are undervalued. So that makes them targets for people to buy them. So now these investors are buying up properties and they don't want, and they're renting them out at exorbitant rents. Mm -hmm. So they're stealing the dream of home ownership from people who who are the tenants now who could be homeowners. Right. Because, you know, the criteria you have to go through to be a tenant is not much different than to get a NACA, no down payment, no closing cost mortgage, or maybe some other mortgages. And they're charged. And so people, so then now the tenants are generating wealth for the already wealthy. Correct. So our campaign now, because we haven't stopped, is yes, we were there in the middle, uh, in the forefront of the mortgage crisis. Now we're in the forefront of these corporate investors, these corporate landlords stealing the dream of affordable home ownership. So it's Blackstone, it's Invitation Homes, it's those players out there that are doing this. And that's our current campaign. Those are the predators today. And a lot of them are the same names they were back during the mortgage crisis, mm -hmm. but now they're owning these homes. So, you know, and, and what you are describing of the impact on individuals, mm -hmm. it's devastating, yeah. you know, because it's not just, and people are good people. They'll do everything they can to keep their homes, but the consequences are devastating. Not only are you not generating wealth, but you're not investing in your own or your children's future. Exactly. And that's personal. That's a and systemic so that's our, problem. And that's a systemic problem. And that's what we have to fight. And so the battle goes on. Absolutely. Yeah, we've won. I should say the war goes on because the, we've won a lot of the battles, but the war go, goes on against those players. So I'm actually writing a book. I start January of, of next year. I have a ghostwriter already identified who's written 40, by the way. Um, and we're writing a book on homeownership. I would love it if I could interview you for that book, because NACA is going to be a chapter in that book. It's 25 chapters. I've already got it outlined. 
I would love to interview you for that book. Um, the reason we're writing it is because millennials have PTSD as it relates to home ownership. In 2008, they were children and they watched the people that they loved that were closest to them. They watched them lose their houses. And so to them, real estate is not part of the American dream. And I'm just crazy enough, Bruce, to believe that I can drive a national narrative. I can write a book that takes that makes the case for millennials as to why the American dream needs to include home ownership again. The average homeowner, according to the National Association of Realtors, the average net worth of a homeowner is $300,000 plus. The average net worth of, of a tenant is $8,000. Yeah. That's almost a $300,000 delta. And you take that and you multiply it by tens of millions of millennials out there that don't trust real estate or don't want, don't, you know, they feel too fearful to go buy. That's a problem. That's 74% of this yeah. nation's net worth is real estate. When, when our millennial, when our millennial generation, which is huge, is not buying real estate, that's a problem systemically for the U.S. because our standard of living is tied to them and their net worth going forward, right? Yeah. yeah. We're literally in the middle of the single largest transfer of wealth in our nation's history. There's some $72 trillion being transferred from of wealth being transferred from baby boomers to, to their millennial kids and grandkids. 90% of that is real estate and the millennials don't want it. Well, I I would push back a little bit, Mike, and say yes, yes, that you know they don't have that mindset. But where where's the opportunity for them to buy? Well, that's what you I'm know, saying. If, you know, if, if if the inventory is not there, and whatever inventory is there is being bought up by these corporate landlords, right? And you know, so the answer you hear from uh, the politicians is, well, we need to build more, and yes. You know, but there's no affordable housing being built in this country. Right. None. I mean, so we're building, actually, we're building modular housing, uh, beautiful homes that, for example, a three-bedroom, two-bath, 1,200-square-foot home, nine-foot ceilings, beautiful, selling between $120,000, $150,000. And that's about a mortgage payment of about $1,100. Uh, you know, that's getting somewhat, that's getting affordable. As opposed to anything else out there that they do quote unquote affordable is is um three hundred fifty thousand dollars and more right so but, but you got to do it in both way in two ways you got to provide the inventory yes that's important in the new construction we think that modular factory built housing is the way to go but then you got to take on these you know Wall Street um, landlords. Mm -hmm. who are stealing the dreams because right. if you build but they're taking here you're still losing the inventory yeah. so yes i mean i don't necessarily blame uh the young people the gen z you know the millennials all that because where are they going to see that affordable housing that they can actually afford yeah well that's why we're writing the book we're writing the book so we can give them a high yeah, it's, it's literally a how-to, right? And it also talks about if life throws you curveballs, because one of the things that millennials fear the most is losing their house to foreclosure, bankruptcy, that kind of thing. Well, there are ways to recover from that. And so the book oh, yeah. talks about that in particular, line by line. So it's basically an instruction manual for them. Uh, that sounds great.
That sounds great. Yeah, no, I would be glad to do that with you. I'm excited. So, um, but yeah. So let's talk about let's talk about what what's happening now, and let's talk about what is in the future for you. So we're uh, you know we we put ourselves in a unique position uh, where you know we control our own destiny. So uh, the government can't put their hands on us uh, to, uh, you know, back us off. So we've got $20 billion, the best mortgage in America. And factually, it's the best mortgage because we're licensed as a nonprofit mortgage broker in all 50 states. Right. So sometimes the regulators push back and they say, how can you say it's the best mortgage in America? We push back and we say, check it out. And they say, yep, you're the only entity that can say this. So we've got that. We do character-based lending. We don't look at someone's credit score. We look at what payments that they control. So we don't let those three numbers define who you are. We've done over 75,000 mortgages. We have a foreclosure rate of 0.00012, about one-hundredth of 1%. We've demonstrated that when you lend to people, and 93% of our home buyers are people of color, so when you lend on affordable terms, you do the counseling, people make the payments. Yeah. Uh, we're the largest HUD certified counseling agency in the country. There's 1,700. We're one. We do 30% of the counseling in the country. We do it the best. Got that. Now we're actually building housing. I'm actually looking at buying factories, modular factory built homes that can do these on a large scale. So, so we're doing that. We're going after, as we talked about, these uh, corporate landlords. We're right. doing that campaign. So again, it's working with people on the grassroots, not because they can't fight back, but they need an organization that can provide them the support and the wherewithal to take on these campaigns, just like during the mortgage crisis, where as we talked about, we had 40 or 50,000 people and we had the agreement with the lenders to do the, all the major lenders and all the major investors to do that. That's that's the the uh, uh, new campaign uh, we didn't talk about, but you know we were if it wasn't for NACA and our three hundred forty thousand members in Georgia, we mobilized President Biden and you know um, Senator Warnock and Senator you know uh, you know Ozark would not be in their in their positions today because we organized that through our PACs and our other uh, actions that we do. Um, so we're, you know, deep into um, uh, all of this stuff. We just got back. Um, we're doing the events. So just like uh, the event that you went to in, you know, San Diego, Los Angeles, mm -hmm. we're doing the same events. But we're doing it instead of save the dream, they're called achieve the dream. Right. So achieve the dream event is for home buyers. So we sort of took a step back after the mortgage crisis. Said, well, would people participate in a purchase event mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to a save my home event. So we started that in Charlotte and we had thousands of people come. So we just did uh, in the last couple of months, we did an event in, um, in Newark and we had over 25,000 people. And what Mayor Baraka of Newark did is he's saying, I will agree to, with NACA to do what we call the $1 program. So what's the $1 program? That's when you drive around a city or any community, you see vacant land and you see vacant houses. And what a city or town or county does is they sell it to a developer 
and the developer will either sit on it or they'll they will develop it and it'd be unaffordable. So what we said is let's eliminate the developer, sell that uh, that vacant house to a home buyer for one dollar. Mm -hmm. Sell that vacant lot to a home buyer for one dollar. And NACA will provide the financing to either renovate the vacant house or to do the new construction on the vacant lot. We had over 25,000 people over five days come to our uh, event in Newark. Then, you know, a few weeks later, we had over 8,000 come to event in Conyers, Georgia, in a rural area outside of Atlanta. Mm -hmm. I just got back over the last two weeks. We just did an event in Houston and in Chicago. Again, over 8,000 people, home buyers at each one of those events. So we're nationwide. We're all 50 states. Mm -hmm. So we make the NACA standard, the national standard. So we have the lowest fixed interest rate. Yep. We have no payment, no closing costs, no mortgage insurance, no fees, character-based lending. So I can only say, Mike, even though we did unbelievable work, but the purchase program, I can only say was absolutely successful in June of 2019. Because what happened in that June, we did a big event in New York City. Uh, and we had over over 20,000 home buyers over five days. And everybody heard about NACA from family, friends, coworkers, neighbors. There was no media, no outreach. And that has continued ever since. Yeah. So it's the respect and the understanding for people as what you were, you know, you know, describing with um, hairdressers or other people telling other people. Yeah. Because when you say to people, you can get a mortgage with no down payment, no closing costs, no fees, all that. It sounds too good to be true. Right. And that's the right question to ask. It's the right question to ask because where are where do criminals and fraudsters go? They go into the mortgage and the real estate business. Yeah. So everybody's trying to rip you off. But then you ask, how did you hear about NACA? And it's word of mouth from people mm -hmm. you trust. And that's the best reflection of the organization. So we have three and a half million members. Mm -hmm. And yet people participate. We require people to give back in whatever way they feel comfortable. Yep. So as good as it's been over the you know four decades that I've been doing this, you know we we put us ourselves in a position where we can continue to, you know, to push. We yeah. continue to push for affordable home ownership and economic justice, and that's what we're doing. So in a sense, we have an obligation because we put ourselves in this position to take on those fights where no one else can really take on. You know, the Blackstones, the invitation homes, these wealthy, well-positioned uh, corporate landlords. But, you know, when you do it for the right thing for the people, we'll get massive amount of participation. And, you know, we've taken on big fights. It took us four and a half years to beat Fleet. It took us, you know, two and a half to beat First Union and Ford Motor Company, you know, for a couple of years. All those things. So, and we haven't lost one yet. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we're to your credit. We'll continue to organize and to push. Yeah. That's awesome. Buddy. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. Well, I'm proud to call you my friend. So, uh, and I'm proud to be one of your biggest fans too. So, um, 
I'm super excited about what you've done. I'm super excited to have your story on our podcast. I'm also super excited that we're going to get together one of these days and, and interview you for the book. If there's ever anything I can do to help you, please reach out. You have my personal cell number. Yeah. Um, you can always reach me and I'm, I'll am i be there with bells on. You know that. Um, so thank you again for your time. I know you're incredibly busy and this really means the world to me that you did this. Thank you. Oh, oh thank you. Look, it's, it's just great seeing you. You haven't aged the day. Uh, <laughs> now uh, so, I know uh, you're lying. <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, but, but we will be, uh, we're going to be doing the Achieve the Dream event We'll be in California the the beginning of January. Awesome. So, uh, so I will, you know, if uh, not before, I'll see you there, my friend. It'll be great so to would... see you, bud. It'll be great to see you. You take care, okay? Thanks again for doing this. Anytime, Mike. I appreciate really you, you. Have a good day today. We hope you enjoyed another episode of the Mike Litton Experience. If you did, do us a favor, smash that subscribe button, tell your friends, family, and coworkers about our program, and wherever you get your podcasts, please leave us a rating. It helps us to connect with quality people just like you. And that's a wrap. Another episode of the Mike Litton Experience in the books. Reach out to Mike on Instagram at Litton Realty. Want to meet with Mike? Check out calendly.com slash Rio 760.